morning. Um, scripture reading you'll find in your bulletin is from Romans 14, 1 through 12. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat the one with contempt, with contempt, the one who does not. And the one who does not eat anything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge the one someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced of their own mind. Whoever regards one day as a special does not does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we, are, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with such contempt? For we will stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, said the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will accept account of ourselves to God. Okay, so it's my task now to tell you what's right, vegetarianism or vegan or... Um, actually, I want to start with a little bit of, of a story that happened in another church, and I was going to try to keep the church anonymous. I wouldn't have been able to do that. And then two people who, used, who, who go to that church, and I used to know, showed up this morning. Um, and so we're very glad you're here. Uh, it was another church and another time, and I was an associate minister working with young people and uh, with worship teams. They called it uh, the music, whoa, MMT, music ministry team or something, and somehow uh, I was helping to chair that even though I didn't know anything about music. Um, and some people, and this is true even of, of my friends who've come to visit, um, it, it's true of them, but it's true of others. Some people are here now who were there then. And uh, there was a little bit of an incident that uh, you guys might not know about, um, and, and uh, uh, some people who, who were there then may. And, and it has to do with this man that I met early on in, in my time at, at that church that won't be named. Um, and he was just a fantastic guy, helped me so much, did so many things for so many people. Um, and uh, and I, I made a connection with him very early on. But it wasn't long into, into knowing him and getting to know him that I, I kind of thought, uh-oh, I think I might upset this guy. And uh, even though he remained a support all the way through, um, that, that uh, thought came to fruition. I upset him. 
Uh, and so he, he was a, not, not an older guy, he was a younger guy, a uh, young family, and, but he had some really uh, stringent views on things. And sometimes, I don't know if many of you know this, but sometimes people who have stringent views on things sometimes don't quite know what to make of somebody like me, particularly in a pastoral role. But we maintained a fantastic relationship, and he was involved in music as well, uh, like as well as many other people, not myself. But I worked with a number of young people at the time who helped on worship teams. And the incident was one Sunday, the worship team decided, with my blessing, to do a song called 40. Do you know that song? I mean, now the song 40 was done at the time, still is, is older now in its, its recording, uh, by a band called U2 which, you know, Bono and, and U2 would be known if you were trying to determine, like, are they a Christian band or not a Christian band? Um, there's Christians in the band, but they wouldn't be labeled as a Christian band. And so uh, this man, who had a very clear distinction between what is sacred and what is secular, would have had that any song that U2 does is by definition then a secular song, which has no place in church. So on this particular Sunday, the worship team did the song 40, which was, as I say, recorded by U2. Now, the interesting thing about that song is it's just the 40th song. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. I will sing. I will sing a new song. But my friend was upset. Why? Well, in his mind, that was a secular song done by a secular band. We explained, actually, it's the 40th Psalm, but that didn't seem to convince. He knew, that, he knew scripture well. He accepted that this was a psalm. So my question is, now, now you get to play your part. You don't have to shout it out. Don't worry. What am I to do in that circumstance? What would you do? I mean, would you do something like, give your head a shake, buddy. Would you want to? You would, I see some nodding heads. I see that hand. <laughs> um, you know, would you reprimand the worship team for doing a secular song? Probably not. Maybe. Would you be able to connect with his consternation? Would you be able to minister to him? This text that we get to today is going to tell you what you should do in that kind of circumstance. It's not clear. Now, I mean, it doesn't guarantee that everybody goes away happy but it's going to give you some direction as to what we do in that kind of situation and I'll set it in place for you this text exists again within this larger study that we have undertaken that we've called the Christian gospel in the book of Romans remember now this is the best uh, these are among the best truths that we can hold God has turned towards us in Jesus Christ God has chosen not to be God without us this is the grace of the gospel. Grace, grace, God's grace. The first question that the Christian should always hold in their mind, in any interaction you have, in the world in which you walk out to today, in interactions with family members, particularly family members who don't share the Christian faith, but fellow Christians as well. The first question you should have is always, who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? Now relate to these others. You don't have to push your faith, but you can live out the gospel. 
The gospel is outlined in the book of Romans and early on ideas of a self-centered life trying to make it in my own strength or trying to make it by following religious rules. These ideas are both shattered. In other words, you can't get peace and fulfillment through a self-focused life. You can't get peace and fulfillment through religion. But God has provided a way for us, Romans will say, a way of righteousness in Christ Jesus. And you can respond to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And we always need to say in church, if you haven't responded to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, you can always do that. And we would love to help you with it. For you to say, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, I call you Lord, and I give my life to you. You respond to the love of Jesus Christ to what God has done for us. The word for it, as we've looked at the last two sermons, the the description of it, is that what has the first place in Christian practice then is love. It's called the primacy of love. So in the first eight chapters, the gospel is outlined, the book of Romans. In chapters 9 through 11, we have this theological excursus, kind of a, you know, let's talk about some, some questions you may be asking. It gets pretty dense theologically. What about those who don't believe? What all this other kind of stuff? What about those who don't follow the religious law? So that's where we, we really focus on the question, who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? Not who's in and who's out, but who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? That's clarified as we get through to chapter 11. And then chapter 12 begins this, from 12 to the end of the book. You get this, this direction of now. How then are we to live in light of the gospel that we've just outlined? And that's where the term comes up. Here's how you're to live. The primacy of love. So last week we said that the fundamental question in terms of our behavior, what should we do or not do? What shall I do? And the answer in Christian scripture is simple. What shall I do? And the answer is love thy neighbor. And it's a self-focused and self-centered faith that has shifted the focus of Christian responsibility from what shall I do, love thy neighbor, to a personal, individualized morality. That you start to think that it's just like you, your life, your decisions that make you acceptable or not acceptable to God. That's not Christian teaching. Christian teaching is our righteousness comes by Jesus Christ. We respond to him and live in light of the gospel. Now how are you to live? Love thy neighbor. The primacy of love. And you can picture the flow of today's text, and I'll give it for you here visually. So what Paul does here, he's going to use a very small example to work out or to describe how that love works out here today, Sutherland Church on, what's the day? March something, 2016, March 6th. So he's going to say, you, here's, here's how to live this primacy of love out right now. You can do this right now with other people here in this place. But he's going to start with this big picture. You have the gospel first. Now, let me tell you how you live on this particular day. God's mercies, the gospel, and then right down to a small and almost mundane example. And here's the question. How are we to live in daily life with one another even when we disagree? That's a good place to start, right? How are we to live in daily life with one another even when we disagree, particularly when we disagree about God? Now you're going to get your answers. Beautiful, isn't it? But it's pretty mundane. It's pretty small. Except that what Paul's going to do is start this big, big picture with the gospel, 
and move to this small and mundane example, and then by the end of the text that Jen read for us, move back again to this big, big picture and say, there's a reason you live like this, because the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for all of us. It's a great, energizing text. The concerns of this text have to do with disagreements about one thing. They're disagreements. Now, I, I mean one big picture. So there's lots of things they're disagreeing about, but the, but the big concept is freedom. Because you can't earn your way to God, the gospel outlines that. Remember, the gospel outlined in Romans. Because you can't earn your way to God, because God has provided a way for you, you know, so if we were in different kinds of churches, amen, amen, amen. We can't earn our way to God. Amen. God has provided a way for us. Amen. Because salvation is by faith, not by works. Amen. Now, you are free. That's when we get to the disagreements. Because there's disagreements over what that freedom means. There is a Christian call, and I don't often hear this from pulpits. I didn't when I was growing up. Maybe I just missed it. I I did hear, I remember growing up at Delbrook Baptist, and I started to pick up as a young Christian. I got serious about my faith pretty early. And, And I remember thinking, oh, there seems to be a few key issues here that these people are really on about. Um, and I could see posters in the foyer, and okay, here's some major moral issues, and here's some, and I could hear a lot of, you know, you need to do this and not do this, and here's how the world is, but we're different, and so there was a, a there was a moral um, understanding that's helpful. What I didn't hear that much is that there is a call on the Christian. We have a responsibility before the world, and before God, in bearing witness to the gospel in the world, to live freely. You hear people telling you this? You are free because of the gospel. You shouldn't be the one who seems weighed down always by judgment, criticism, doubt. This call to live freely is a Christian call. So I'll give you an example. It's it's even more mundane than than what we're talking about in, in living together. Uh, Jen and I, our family had our we had our trees trimmed in our yard. We lived just five blocks from here, and uh, like everybody else, well, not sorry, this sounds terrible. Like many people um, who have property, you, at, at our age, you can have property and then you don't have any way to pay for anything. Um, and so we haven't trimmed the tree except I did it and I just wrecked them um, for five years since we bought the place. And so we're like, well, we've got to, you know, put it on our line of credit and get the trees trimmed. That's how you live in Vancouver now. And some people, some older people are going, that's not good. Well, you know, we could all move to Abbotsford. But anyway. Um, and so a guy comes over and, and he and I, I, he was recommended. And the person who recommended him say, just remember when you meet him, he's the kind of guy who climbs trees and cuts them down. Well, that's an interesting warning. But anyway, and his truck does run, if you see it has holes in the side, and he comes, and we talk for about half an hour, and he's a really nice guy, kind of, some people would say, rough around the edges, whatever that means. Um, and we're talking, and, and then, you know, he's like, oh, rah, rah, rah. he's like being kind of the, you know, the guy who cuts trees down. And he knew lots about it, and I was so confident that he knew what he was talking about, and then I see, like, ding, 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 the price going up, right? But it was the right thing to do. 
And he says to me at one point, after half an hour of kind of walking around the yard talking, he says, oh, by the way, where'd you get my name? And I said, are you ready for this? This is how I find everything out. Um, oh, a friend of mine named Ken Bell. And he doesn't remember Ken. Who forgets Ken? <laughs> Must have been a bad day for Ken or something. I'm like, Ken Bell, you know, Strathaven. Oh, and he goes, oh, oh, the preacher. And he kind of pauses. And I went, yeah. I said, by the way, I'm a preacher too. And then I see this man stop. And he says, I'm not interested in cutting your trees. No, he didn't say that. I don't want to become tree trimmer for the clergy. What I think I saw him doing was something different. I think to some degree he was going over the last 20 minutes of the conversation and wondering what he'd said that I had already judged him about. In other words, until he found out I was a preacher, he thought I might be free. When he found out I was a preacher, he assumed that I carried all kinds of baggage that I would judge him. A Christian has a responsibility in this world. And I'll tell it to you, if you don't hear it from pulpits, to live freely. We are the ones who've responded to the gospel, that we don't do this in our own strength, that we're not to judge one another. This text, and remember this text is from many, many centuries ago, but it describes a church we could talk about today, our church. Two groups of people are identified in this church that Paul is writing this letter to. They're identified here in this text as the weak and the strong though he doesn't use the word strong in the translation to refer to the second group, but he implies it. And he tells these two groups how they're to relate to one another. And he makes the claim in telling them that how these people relate to one another is an important part of living in light of the gospel and bearing witness to the gospel in the world. So how we live with people who think differently than we do, even in this church, is, is of importance in how we bear witness to the gospel. Now I will tread carefully. Because, and Jen, I, I can say this now? Okay, you say no now. Uh, Jen is a vegetarian, the woman who read scripture today. And she reads a line that says, if you don't eat meat, you're weak in the faith. And she drew my attention to that before. I didn't know. I don't set up the line up and, you know, nobody knows. It's all just, you know. Uh, I'll tread carefully here that the weak in this text are identified not as we might typically understand in a religious community. When you hear that someone is weak in a religious community, who do you think that might be describing? That might be somebody who's easily overcome by temptation, somebody who doesn't know the Bible as well as somebody else, somebody who's not too sure about their faith or something like that, right? That's actually not the people that Paul will describe when he says the weak. Now, I'm not looking to condemn any of you, and this text doesn't allow me to condemn any of you even if I wanted to. But what Paul says is the weak people identified in this text are the ones who are extra strict about the rules. The ones who have a formula for how you are to live and follow it to the letter and would wish that everybody else would follow it too. They may be easily offended. They may present actually as the strongest ones because you would often hear their opinions. In this text, 
Paul identifies those people in our, in our, in our churches. That's, he's going to use the word the weak. The strong, and I want to caution you here because now I've just set up this potential problem for many of you. Many of you, and we always love to think about how the other person needs to hear the sermon. Praise be to God, I always knew that person was weak and Todd said it. Uh, Be careful. The strong are not identified as people who don't care. And your lack of caring about church or faith or rules is not strength. The strong are people who care deeply about their faith and want to please and serve God, but live in relative, compared to those others, freedom when it comes to following all these obligations of the rules. Those are the people that are outlined in the text. What we'll get here is Paul's picture that these people in this church and in our church These people worship, ready for it, together. And that's a particularly Christian call. They serve together, and together they bear witness to the gospel. That's why this is almost a small, mundane problem that points to a huge theological truth. In this context, where there is someone who is not like you, I know this. Maybe I know it because I have this tendency. And it's been one of the greatest blessings in my spiritual life to be freed from it, you know, over time. God's working on me. But in this context, when there's someone who thinks very differently than you do, the temptation can easily become to treat that person as an opponent. If only people had my view of faith. That's what Paul's calling us not to do. Do you know that you worship together? And together you bear witness to the gospel. So from a commentary. Now Pauline means the, like as Paul is describing. Paul is the one writing the letter. So the Pauline Christian does not complain of those who hold opinions differing from his own. This is written in the 30s, so excuse the pronouns. Who does not complain of those who hold opinions differing from his own, nor does he abuse them. Now, the interesting part about the next line in this is that it doesn't mean that he just ignores them either or doesn't sometimes try to gently challenge them, right? Rather, he stands behind them, sympathetically asking them questions. I like that. Why do you believe what you do? How do you... But it's sympathetic. It's together. He has discovered, and this is what God's teaching me as I grow in faith. He has, And I could say this, hallelujah, I could scream this out. He has discovered that he is his own worst enemy long before he has experienced the hostility of others. The problem with the church is not the other person who thinks differently than me. Did you know that this is an important call in your Christian life? And if you feel disharmony with someone in this body or with a particular way of seeing things, I can guarantee you there is a call in your life right now to live this out, seeking this unity. And the best gift is if you don't convince them, but you grow in love for one another. In the church, there are Christians, this church, by the way, some people have a hard time believing what I'm about to say. 
in this church there are Christians who have political views that are just about opposite to yours. Do you know that? Now some churches have not have used that as something there's something wrong. This text reminds us that this is virtue. Out of even out of Christian conviction, there are people sitting around you. I'll tell you who they are right now. I won't. There are people in this church whose political views could not, in many ways, be as different as they are than yours. Now, our response to that should be in faith. Thanks be to God. And I'll tell you what happens in churches that try to promote only one political view. Well, you don't have to look far to see what happens. There are some here who are terribly upset about the state of the world. And they're reminded every time they turn the television on how bad things are in the world and how they're getting worse. And when they turn the TV on and see the news, they think things used to be better. And they're driven at times by that view of the world. There are other people in this church, even right now, who are terribly upset about the state of the church. I don't just mean Sutherland, I mean the Christian church as a whole. That how did Christianity get to this place where this is what it's, it's shown to be? And they would say that too often Christianity makes itself appear as hateful, fearful, divisive. Now those are two very different views. And here we are. And this text will tell us to listen. Disputable matters is what are what's being talked about. The other is not your opponent. And the disputable matters in this case, in the book of Romans, in this text, the disputable matters have to do, and it's interesting, some of them carry all the way through to today. But in this text, the disputable matters have to do with food, with eating, and with religious ceremony and religious days. There is um, some kind of, the, the bigger picture is how do we relate to religious law, but on the ground level it comes out, what are we to do about, what are we allowed to eat or not eat, uh, what about religious days and ceremonies, and some of those differences exist even today. The Anglican church that meets here has all many more days than we have. So this is Saint such and such day and that's whatever day. And we worship and serve together. The list from John Stott that's not that long ago, he's, he's contemporary to our time and a very well-respected biblical scholar, commentator. His list, he says that, well, you got it there, is not necessarily the same as Paul's list in Romans. The list, he would say, this is, I don't know what this was, 40 years ago or something he wrote the commentary? I'm not sure. The list would be baptism, that we do baptism differently than other churches. Ordination, you know, should a minister be ordained or not? Alcohol, interesting that he adds that. Charismatic gifts, the place and what what it means to express charismatic gifts and how, how important are they. And Stott adds the precise nature of heaven and hell. I think we may change the list a little bit from couple or a few decades ago but Stott would say these are disputable matters and then would remind us that there is a common end to all convictions one day and I'd say thanks be to God again one day politics will cease one day we are told gifts will cease one day now I really say thanks be to God 
One day, your convictions will cease. Your feeling of what the world needs, it'll be over. Because you'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and none of that's left. So then, how are we to live? And then he tells us, go back right to my opening illustration. How am I supposed to live then and what am I supposed to do? He spells it out in the text for us. Those who are strong, in other words, those who are more able to live in freedom, accept those who don't live like that. Accept them. Love them. And don't hurt them. Because do you know how easy it is to hurt somebody who carries these deep, deep convictions that it has to be this way? It's really easy. I can tell you that, particularly for a minister, but for all of us. Accept them and don't hurt them. But he says that the weak, those identified as weak in this text, the ones who it's very important to follow a whole list of rules, and, right? You have a responsibility as well, he says. It's, well, you have a responsibility as well. Don't condemn those others because they're not doing it like you think they should. It's not profitable to play rigorism and freedom against one another. And then verses 7 to 12 will move to the grand theological point. It's at the beginning as well. Why do you accept the other person? At the beginning of the text, it's there. Why, are they, why should you accept them even though they're different than you? And there's one reason given at the beginning of the text. You accept them because God's accepted you and them. And then it moves from back to that mundane, how we live this out, and then back again to the big picture. If I am one who lives in freedom, I might look at what you're strict about and see it you know, as something that, well, why, why, why does that matter to them? In other words, I might judge you. But what I'm called to do is to seek to discern if, and often this is exactly the case, if your rigorism is your attempt and your honesty about seeking to serve God, And if I can say, yes, I believe that's what they're doing. Not to judge. And if you, to quote the commentary, if you shake your head at the folly of the world, and you shake your head at the folly of Todd, and how he seems to do things and not care about things that he probably should care about, that's what it appears to be. If you shake your head at the folly of the world, And my folly, you have a responsibility. You are to accept that God accepts me. We are both dependent upon God's God's grace. So, and then it moves to this. So if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we let go, we relinquish. We even relinquish our earthly life. If we die, we die unto the Lord. The Lord is above all. So then the question, and now the question comes to us as a church. So then, why do you judge? Why? There's a good word here in in some of the translation of that question, why do you judge? that one of the ways it's translated is, why do you set at naught? And, and what that means is, 
if that's spelled correctly, probably not. Anyway, uh, why do you set at naught? In other words, why do you take that person and just peg them right here? And you've set them in a place and they can't get out of it. And you know what they need, what's wrong with them, what their shortcomings are, what they're missing. And probably you, you know how, if only they could think like you think, they would be okay. You set them at naught. Here's the question. Why do you set them at naught? Why have you done that to your brother or your sister in Christ? Why are you looking down upon them? So Paul lifts this mundane question of how we are to live and treat one another and moves it to these grand theological themes. Listen to the end of the text. He moves it to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord, not your religious rigorism and not your freedom. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what a blessing that you can worship together. We live and pray and work together. I'm just going to read what I have next in my notes. I'm aware, and you could tell me, why did you write it that way? But it's there, I'm going to say it. One of the best-looking people in our church is Bill Sagey. That was the next thing in my notes. <laughs> Lois just said, who knew? <laughs> well, Lois, I'm glad you learned something today. <laughs> I, uh, I informed, I didn't tell Bill I'd say that line, but I informed more than asked Bill that I'd be using an illustration with him in it at the end of the sermon. And I told him, yes, I'll give you a toonie, but I don't have it now. So... Um, when I was a youth minister here years ago, Bill was attending another church. Bill and Lois were. But Bill was very much involved up at Anvil Island, and I was a speaker at a number of camps at Anvil, usually camps directed by Bob Trainer, who was of a particular reputation as well in terms of freedom. Um, sorry, insider stuff. I used to upset people because I did things like, and I didn't know better because I wasn't raised in, in a lot of rigorism. Um, and, and I came to my faith on my own and not through, you know, I, I don't mean, sorry, I shouldn't say that. You always come to faith through the witness of others. But uh, I got to a place, even as a youth pastor, where I would do things in chapel at Anvil, like show Simpsons clips. And I, you know, I learned pretty, on, pretty early on that that was upsetting to some people. And you don't want to let me know it's upsetting because then sometimes I do it more. Um, and thank you, Lawrence. But here's how Bill comes into the picture. Bill had a role at Anvil, and I hadn't even met him yet. I probably had heard about him. But Bill had this title, um, and, and it was, it's a great title, Camp Inspector. Is that right? And so the Camp Inspector, one of their roles is to correct people like me. And so, actually, Bill was never anything except gracious to me. It was never any confrontation. But I had determined, particularly because as I saw Bill get off the boat and the camp inspectors to go through all of the things of the camp that week, is chapel running well and is this thing going well and all those other kind of things, and maybe even talk with the speaker, maybe not. And as Bill got off the boat, and I'd heard of him by reputation, that he, he was strong and capable and knew the order of things and serious about his faith. And I had, I had, a, I had probably a two-dimensional view of Bill before I ever knew him. And then he stepped off the boat and his hair was perfect. 
and that just solidified my view. He looked like the best-looking conservative guy I could ever, right? I don't know what Bill thought of me then. I don't think I'll ask him. But I tell you the story because something has happened. Mark didn't give me Kleenex today, so I'll get through this. Bill wasn't going to Sutherland at the time, Bill and Lois. They came a number of years after that. I was still youth pastor here. And when I went to St. Andrew St. Stephen's, it was actually Bill and Lois who were among the first people to say, we'll be so sorry to see this. I think they meant it. I actually believe that. And through the years, something has happened. I now count Bill, and I, I wouldn't know if he does the same, but I kind of suspect he does. As one of the greatest encouragers of my faith. Though then, maybe, and maybe now, he doesn't see the world in exactly the same way I do. Here's what's happened. And this is exemplified by last week, after I preached, came down, and Bill had tears in his eyes, and he came up to me, and he hugged me, and he said, thank you. And we both kind of said at the same time, and I don't know that Bill or I are the kind of guys to say this a lot, maybe, I don't know. But we both said at the same time, I love you. Here's what happened. Our shared faith and trust in Jesus Christ overwhelmed all similarities and differences. And we worshiped and served together. This is the hope we have. That person who is different than you and see things, sees things differently, particularly in a religious community, and how you just wish that they could change and they're kind of in the way, it feels. Do you know that it's the greatest gift that you get to worship together and share this faith together? So we call one another and we say to you, if you've never done this in this place or you've never done this anywhere, that you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. And in many, in many kind of understandings of the Christian faith, that's kind of an individual act. Like, I became a Christian. I went to the back and I prayed and I said, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ, right? And in our tradition, we think of that often as an individual act. And to, to a large degree, it is and can be. It's not only ever an individual act, though, not only exclusively that, because the truth is we put our faith in Jesus Christ together. We accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as we do that, whatever differences we may have, they just change. They just lose their edge. In fact, we get to say, I am so thankful, and I mean this when I say it, I don't just say it as a joke, I am so thankful that that person doesn't think like I think, even though at times it drives me crazy. I'm so thankful. So here's the call for us as Sutherland Church. Will we together, wherever we're coming from, will we together put our faith in Jesus Christ? And will you recognize that in the other person? And as we do that, we will bear witness to the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. Let's pray. So as I've mentioned twice already, we open that invitation to you if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ to do so.
uh, if you feel that sense of the direction of the Holy Spirit. Each of us, those of us who are Christians in this place, we have been in that place to say, I haven't put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. I want to put my trust in you. Forgive me of my sins. And help me to know what it means to live in you. You can pray that after the service with somebody here. You can pray that in the quiet now. And then we would say it's good to tell somebody you've done that. For the rest of us who are Christians, this call this morning before us, would we together put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and be grateful that we don't see things the same way. We don't have to agree with everything that other person thinks and they don't have to agree with us. We have to accept those who are different than us and we are not to condemn. So Heavenly Father, would you call us to these things this morning? To put our faith in you both individually and corporately as a body. And then to be enlivened in this mission to bear witness to the gospel in this world. We have taken the bread and the cup and we say thank you Heavenly Father for your goodness. Bless us we pray in Jesus name. Amen.